It is hard to make sense of everything that is happening across the world today. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at the Registry SF in San Francisco or at the Registry PS in Seattle. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Steve O'Connell, the CEO of Grovner Americas, in the chair. Steve provides the strategic direction for Grovner Americas' investment, development, and financing activities working out of the company's San Francisco office. Steve joined the Americas arm of the 340-year-old International Property Development Company in 2011 and was appointed to the Grovner Americas board in 2018, ascending to its leadership in 2019. We talked to Steve about what it's like to lead a real estate company with significant retail assets across its portfolio in today's COVID age and how a perspective built on centuries of experience brings an enduring structure to the company. Welcome, Steve O'Connell. Steve, good morning. How are you? Good, bud. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Are you at the office? Have you guys began reopening? I am not at the office. I'm I'm here in the Bay Area, so I'm up in uh, Tam Valley, which is basically between Mill Valley and Tennessee Valley, and uh, we've not yet opened our offices here. Um, last week we opened our office in Vancouver, and that's that's a bit of an experiment for us to see how that goes. But as of yet, in San Francisco, we're all still uh, working from home. Yeah, and from the headlines that I've seen, Vancouver is doing very well. I see that their sort of chief medical officer has been kind of a uh, uh, somewhat of a rock star up there and uh, has done really well in terms of controlling the pandemic, and uh, things are going really well. Yeah, the, the difference between our Vancouver office and our staff there versus uh, San Francisco and D.C. has been quite striking. Um, and, and as a result, they're they're coming out of this recovery much more quickly in terms of their ability to go to restaurants and be in the office. So a little glimmer of hope for the rest of us. Um, but yeah, they're doing well up there. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, Steve, just as a little bit of an introduction, I would I would love for you to give us uh, you know, a bit of an overview how long you've been with Grosvenor, who Grosvenor is, um, where are you guys active in North America? Um, you know, just a little bit of an overview would be would be great. Sure, absolutely. So uh, I've been with Grosvenor for uh, 10 years now, and uh, the 10 years prior to that, I was I was here in the Bay Area working with what was then called Swinerton and Wahlberg. So I, I came from the builder side. And uh, in the time that I've been with Grosvenor, um, I started off in San Francisco working in the development team and uh, helped uh, start off our residential program in San Francisco. And ultimately, I, I ended up running the San Francisco development program here um, before I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to become involved in our investment and co-investment program uh, across North America. So for three years, I was responsible for for that uh, program, uh, looking over our investment portfolio and our, our MES lending program. And uh, most recently, last year, I uh, uh, took over my current role, which is as, as chief executive. And uh, I'm still based here in San Francisco, but I do spend a lot of time on the road. So that's, I guess, a little intro to me and how long I've been with Grosvenor. In terms of uh, Grosvenor Americas, I'll probably talk about us, Grosvenor Americas, but also get a context in terms of how we fit into the international operating company. 
So we are, we're an, uh, an independent group here in North America, but we are part of an international group that was um, founded in London over 340 years ago. So our history is quite unique, particularly in that for that 340 years, the company has been privately held uh, continuously for that whole time. It's quite an interesting history with the company. It was it was founded in central London, uh, where the Grosvenor family essentially developed and redeveloped and has actively managed uh, some neighborhoods in central London, which are Mayfair and Belgravia. Yeah. And they've obviously done a fantastic job with that. And so the company has, has been a long-term real estate developer and investor. And we came into the picture post-World War II, where, the, the, where Grosvenor made its first international investment by um, buying an island in British Columbia. And we essentially became an industrial developer and built what was then one of the largest industrial parks in Canada. And, and since that time, we've essentially evolved through every product type, and we've been in lots of cities. And, and essentially, we've been following the most compelling market opportunities that have presented themselves over time. So we've, we've now have a portfolio that is roughly equally weighted between retail, office, and residential. And, uh, and we have some industrial holdings up in, uh, up in Vancouver still. So we've had a quite a varied past as we've evolved over time, but we've been here in the Bay Area since the early 1970s, and we've been building and investing out of our San Francisco office again continuously since the early 70s. So a, a good a good broad base of uh, of activity, and as it stands today, we've got AUM of around five billion dollars, and we have a development pipeline today that's that's equally uh, five billion dollars as well. And we have a, a small mezzanine landing program we run, which is uh, it, it invests in uh, residents that are building residential outside of our own target zone. Yeah, we've got a pretty diverse base, uh, and, and that that diverse base of investment products really provides the foundation for our business, and it enables our development activities and our mez lending activities. Yeah. So, so when when you said um, you have about a five billion dollar pipe pipeline, does does that effectively mean that when that is completed, you will have doubled your uh, you know footprint in North America? It, it would, uh, except a good portion of our development pipeline is um, build to sell versus build to hold. Yep. So I I, I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm guessing. If we were to build out that development pipeline today, we'd probably end up retaining 50% of it, whereas 50% of it would be for sale. So it will contribute for sure. Yeah, makes sense. And then other than, uh, you, you know, you mentioned DC and San Francisco and Vancouver, this is where you have offices, but where are your properties located across across the US and Canada? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We've, throughout time, we've, we really have been all across the country and in lots of different cities, but in the last 10 to 15 years, we've, we've been much more focused on narrowing down our investment um, opportunities. So uh, as it stands today, we are developing in San Francisco, D.C. and Vancouver. And then for our investment program, we're investing in those three cities, plus also investing in Seattle and L.A. So we're quite focused on the markets that we're in today. And that's that's proven to help us in terms of making sure we've got the, that local knowledge in those cities. Yeah. So a company that's been around for 340 years uh, has seen its share of kind of ups and downs. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I bet the sort of annals of history um, at the corporate office are, you know, uh, you know, you know, very impressive. How has the company, you know, followed where where to invest has been? Have you been focused on certain parts of the industry on? certain 
specific product types. Uh, tell us a little bit about sort of how you choose where you go. Sure, that's that's a great question. And I'll start at the at the sort of higher international level because I think uh, one thing that that Grovner has done, which has really contributed to our success, is take on a management structure which they refer to as the devolved structure. And what the devolved structure mean is that they really empower the international operating companies. So for us, for example, here in Grosvenor Americas, we are essentially an independent company and we have our own local board that helps provide us governance. We manage our own capital here. We source our own capital partners. We set our own strategic plan and we make our own investment decisions. So I think that was a long way of saying, I think the thing that the company does is it delegates down the investment decisions to the local professionals that are actually living in these cities. And by doing so, we're able to more closely follow what the most compelling market opportunities are at any point in time. So what we've done in the last 10 years is really reconfigure ourselves to be very residential focused. Our development program essentially only develops residential. Um, our MES lending program is only geared towards residential developers. And our investment program, while we do have all three of those asset classes in our portfolio, our new activity over the last 10 years has been predominantly weighted towards residential. So in that way, we, we kind of let the local people source out and find what the most compelling market opportunities are. And for us in the last 10 years, it has been residential with a clear focus there. And obviously what's happening now is going to help expedite whatever the next iteration of investment will be. Yeah, and and I want to switch over to that. So, by all accounts, I imagine 2019 was a very successful years. Uh, was a very successful year for you guys. Tell us a, l- a little bit about kind of how you looked at the industry and and the market in December of 2019. Yeah, we. I mean, this this whole last cycle was very strong for us. So we had a, we had a many good years of, of growth there through the last cycle. But what we were finding, particularly in the last year or two was that our level of activities were starting to slow down. And, and that was for two reasons. The first was that on the development side, we were finding that construction pricing was really making some of our projects non-viable. And that was particularly acute here in the Bay Area. And then on the investment side of the business, we were finding that people were essentially paying core pricing for the type of value-add work that we like to do when we're acquiring new properties. So it was becoming more and more difficult for us to find compelling opportunities in the last year or two. And we also, because we were a, we're a slightly conservative company, we were taking a conservative approach for the last year or two and really thinking that a recession was coming and taking some steps to prepare ourselves. To your question, in December of 2019, we ended the year with a portfolio occupancy of 97% and, um, and, and a real focus on longer term leases with higher quality tenants. So that I think is really going to serve us well because we did put in the time to make sure that our portfolio was, was as, as tight as possible. And in 2019, we finished, we mostly disposed of around a billion dollars worth of um, value-add investments that we had made, which were intended to be shorter term in nature. So we, we we managed to get most of those out of the way. And, and also we hit some pretty clear milestones for our development program, which helped take some risk out of the program. So that last year, we were feeling pretty good about how we were preparing ourselves for what for a for a short uh, or sorry a downturn that might come. However, to be clear, we did not get off scot free, and and we are we definitely have been feeling some pain over the last few months. But we were we were feeling good about things in 2019. We just come off several strong years, and we right. felt like we prepared ourselves well. Right. 
so it's interesting that you said um, uh, that a big portion of your portfolio is in retail. Retail obviously is is one um, asset class that is getting affected quite a bit. There are a, a lot of retail landlords who are basically saying, you know, we were you know getting all these credit tenants, and now you know the day the credit was supposed to count, it doesn't count anymore. I'd, I'd love to yeah. sort of get a sense from you, and I don't want to focus just on retail, but you know, just because it is a big portion of your of your portfolio, you know, how 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 has that played itself out? Yeah, well, it's it's the right it's the right area to focus in for sure. That's it's been the most dramatic area for us over the last few months. And as I mentioned earlier, we we came out with a, a proactive rent deferral program for all of our independent and what we consider to be more vulnerable tenants. So we were we were prepared for that and essentially have accepted the fact that that rent for 2020 will not be there. But obviously, we're finding that even the larger and in some cases, multinational groups are also not feeling comfortable paying their rent uh, at this moment. So we are our asset managers are spending a lot of time working with our tenants, trying to come up with plans and ways to move forward with them. And this is an unusual situation for us. It's it, It's unusual that we have an entire segment of our portfolio, which overnight the tenants have no revenue source and as a result our income stream is at risk so this is an extremely unusual time having said that we're we're doing relatively well from a collection standpoint and we've been trying to do what we can to help the tenants become informed about some of the government programs that are available for them but it's it's been dramatic and we're pretty clear that we're going to be dealing with a fallout of this over the next several years I think there's going to be a reorganization as it relates to retail, you know, in the time that follows as things reopen again and we find out what the new world order looks like. Yeah. And it's also global. That's, I guess, the other challenge of it, right? This is not something that's affecting just one region of the world, correct? That's that's exactly right. And I mean, in our conversations with our international um, colleagues, what's happening with us has clearly happened everywhere else as well. It's, It's heartening to hear in Asia that things are reopening again. But it's it's still it's going to be a long path back to normal. That's for sure. Yeah. Are there some trends that you're noticing in in Asia? I know, for instance, you know a lot of their retail shopping comes from online, so it's you know a little different than we have it here in North America. But are are there some trends there that you see will you know become part of sort of daily life and reality in North America as well? I, I think so, and particularly one you've touched on, which is a, a rise of e-commerce. And it's it's that's consistent with our uh, with with our operations in the United Kingdom as well. They actually have a, quite a high adoption rate of e-commerce, and I, I think that was happening here in North America. But what's happened by virtue of us all being locked at home and and being unable to go to traditional retail, I think our adoption of e-commerce is now in seriously expedited as well. So I think that trend in particular is one that is necessarily going to uh, pick up here as well. Yeah. So at the beginning of this year, the pandemic hits and um, you guys obviously, like everybody else, you know, shuts down offices. You know, how how does that, you know, play itself out with, you know, Grosvenor across the world? Are, are there any kind of, you know, lessons learned uh, from from that experience that, that you can share? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was helpful. I was when this was going down in let's say March and April. There was a period of time when I was on the phone at least once a week with the CEOs of the other international companies, and it was it was quite helpful to hear how uh, Asia had responded. And when I was first hearing about offices being closed and remote working and 
uh, and then the subsequent plans to reopen. It gave us a little bit of time here to prepare ourselves mentally for what was going to happen. So the response has been across the international companies has been to focus on the health and safety of our people first and foremost, and then and then after that, <clears throat> come up with plans to uh, to help maintain the business, keep our retail tenants in business, and to the extent possible, carry on as business as usual. But it was it was definitely a dramatic time. I think that's going to be that's going to go down as one of the most intense quarters. Uh, I hope one of the most intense quarters of my career, that's for sure. Yeah. So I do want to now, you know, not just focus on the negative. I do want to turn over to some, you know, positive also. As we are kind of slugging through through this, where does the company see opportunities? You know, where you know this sure. is this is usually a time when you know innovative and you know companies that endure. Certainly, one like you know yours kind of sees this also as a time of of opportunity and reinvigoration and reinvention. How? Is your organization looking at at that as a, as a as a possible positive? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I'll I'll tackle that on two fronts. First, on the opportunity side, maybe more broadly within the industry, and then specifically, I, I completely agree with you about at times like this, fostering change and innovation. So, on the first question, as it relates to opportunities at a very macro level, the amount of liquidity that's being put into the system due to the stimulus plans and also the lower interest rates, which are now the norm for us, over the long run, I think that commercial real estate will benefit from those things. Although we will have to endure some pain in the short term, those factors are going to help us in terms of future growth. And frankly, there's an opportunity for the market to reset here. As I mentioned earlier, we were finding construction pricing was making projects uh, less viable, particularly in the Bay Area, and and pricing was getting very sharp. And frankly, a reset uh, is probably healthy for us, at, even though it is painful. And, and then at the asset level, I think there's obviously some clear winners and losers with what's going on here between you know retail and office versus industrial and residential. But I, I think it's too early to call on, on how uh, opportunities will manifest themselves. And I, I don't think it's it's correct to completely write off uh, retail and and office because people are still inherently social. And I think innovation comes from social interaction. So to the extent you have retail and, and office uh, that offers a social experience, I think those types of properties are going to continue to do well. And maybe there's some opportunity if people are uh, undervaluing that. So, and then by, you can juxtapose that by saying those that are more utilitarian and just serving a utilitarian purpose are probably going to do less well. So I think there will be some opportunity in parsing between those two things. In terms of us as an organization, I, I, I completely agree with you, Vlad. The, it, it's times like this that help expedite change within a company. And when you think about us and, you know, the, the fact that we've started off as an industrial developer and if you look at us today, we're doing some very high quality residential pro products uh, in each of our offices. And, and in between, we've done every other product type. It, it's times like this that help expedite our change and help push us forward into a new stage of evolution. So we're trying to be proactive about it. We are taking this time to sit down and really challenge our investment theses. We're, we're challenging our strategies on the development and investment side. We're reconfiguring our, our marketing materials so we can take a more active approach to uh, capital partnership as we get into the next cycle. And across the business, I've, I've basically sent out a survey to everybody to ask them, what do they think they can do within their role to help improve our processes, 
basically sharpen our tools so that when the next when we're in the next recovery, we're in a better place than we are today. So I'm wholeheartedly embracing this concept of change and innovation because I think it helps motivate staff and it's and it's times like this that provide the opportunity to do that. Yeah, definitely. Are you guys looking at how the evolution between sort of urban and suburban is is happening? I mean, the sort of suburban urban uh, thing is probably more prevalent here in North America than other parts of the world. Yes. So it might be somewhat more unique to your organization than maybe some of the other parts of um, the company. How how do you see that evolving? Do you see sort of suburbs becoming more important again, and maybe you guys? begin to develop in those areas? Yeah, that, that is an important question for us because obviously our, our long history is one of being quite urban uh, in central London. And and we here in North America, we're, we're an urban player as well. Uh, and we're, we're highly concentrated in those, those five cities that I mentioned to you earlier. So it, an important distinction for us is that, you know, urbanity for, for us, it, it means vibrancy. And vibrancy is not just limited to the CBD and the downtowns. So uh, we've not just been focused on building in the downtowns, but we're also looking at those vibrant cities that surround the downtowns in those markets in which we're active. And, uh, you know, we believe, and I believe deeply in the cities in which we're investing. And uh, as a result, we're going to maintain our focus on these core markets and just make sure we're clear that that urbanity is not just it's not just solely exclusively in the CBD, but it also applies to those great cities that surround the CBD. And and we're going to stay focused on that versus sort of running out to tertiary markets, which are much more suburban in nature. How then does your organization look at the rest of 2020? Are there any kind of notable things that you are, are anticipating in you know Q3 and Q4? Uh, what happens in 2021? You know, give us a sense of sort of as you as you look at that. Well, I, I mean, I think 2020 is going to be rough. Uh, if you think that it's it's mid year right now and we're dealing with extremely basic things like when is our staff going to be able to come back into our offices? And when will our tenants be able to pay rent? These are these are some pretty basic, fundamental questions yeah. that we're dealing with. And as that plays out for the rest of the year, uh, I think this is going to be a, a tough year by all accounts, um, both on the you know the revenue generating side and on the the asset value side of things. The, the economic landscape right now is extremely dramatic, and it's it's tied to a medical crisis. So my opinion is that any attempt to predict the future right now is, is really guesswork. But from a pure real estate perspective, um, again, I think 2020 is going to be a tough one. Beyond, you know, beyond 2020, as we get to 2021 and beyond, I'm much more optimistic that things are going to come back. It's going to be different based in different product types. So I think retail uh, is going to have a lot of things to work out. And there could be a drag on office demand relative to where we were pre-crisis based on an, uh, people accepting working from home more openly. But, but generally, I'm, I'm really bullish on our markets. And I'm pretty optimistic that this reset will provide us an opportunity to get really active again in these markets. And in the medium to long term, I, I am very, very confident about the Bay Area you know, Seattle, DC, LA, and Vancouver, these are fantastic places to be, and, and we're quite bullish about them. Yeah, of course, of course. So, Steve, uh, your, your company has also been involved with a number of opportunities in kind of helping industries and, you know, companies through charitable giving. Tell us a little bit about what, what you guys have, have done and sort of the impact that you've made. 
Yeah, and over the, I mean, we've always had a focus on we're a private company and, and we can choose to to donate and to give back at whatever levels we choose. And so that's always been a focus for us. And particularly over the last few years, we, we've really become increasingly focused on making positive social contributions with our work while we're executing our business plan. So it's manifested itself in a few ways. Last year, we signed up for the World Green Building Council's 2030 net zero carbon commitment, which is an aggressive challenge from a sustainability standpoint. Yep. And uh, and then also with every project we do and every new property we buy, as part of our investment thesis, we have to have a business plan for how we're going to create some positive social benefit from what we're doing. And this overarching mindset that we've had has, has really helped us in this crisis. Because when we were dealing with those, you know, the our uh, health and safety of our staff and the imminent transactions and all the chaos that was going on in March and April, we were also able to put together an emergency uh, donation program where our staff helped come up with ideas for who was put in the most personal hardship by virtue of what was going on. And in a matter of uh, a number of weeks in the, at the beginning of the crisis, we were able to donate uh, uh, $370,000 to people who were being directly affected by the crisis. And I think the best example or the coolest example came from DC where we worked with one of our retail tenants who was having a hard time and we purchased $60,000 worth of laptops and tablets from them, which we were then able to donate to a local school in DC, which is less privileged than other schools. Sure. And it was, it was just this great win-win. And it's because we have this sort of social focus that allowed us to take those steps in what was a pretty chaotic time. So I, I think it's it's just a good thing for us to do, and it also helps motivate our staff, and I can see no downside to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there are certainly uh, plenty of opportunities for, for that kind of assistance these, these days. Exactly. Um, uh, so as my kind of final question, so your company has gone through uh, a number of cycles, probably un- uncountable if you look at all the sort of, you know, centuries and, yeah. and, and things and wars. Um, but but in, you know, North America, you know, the, the country is not as old as that. What are some lessons learned from maybe a couple of the last cycles that, you know, you've experienced and uh, that, that you are implementing sure. today? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I've been in San Francisco for .com and, and also the GFC. And, but I think, so I, I felt that pain here, which was acute in both cases. But I think for Grosvenor, we did learn uh, from something from the GFC. And, you know, we are a, a, a very long-term company and we tend to be around for a very long time still. So we're naturally fiscally conservative. However, we found in the GFC that while we had enough liquidity to maintain our existing business, we didn't have enough to get out and take advantage of some of the opportunities that followed the GFC. And as a result, we've, uh, we've sub- significantly improved our uh, stress liquidity tests that we put in place internally. And, and that's just to make sure that we always have enough financial capacity to, to weather a storm and also set some aside to make sure we can transact on the opportunities we want to. So the GFC really helped improve our rigor in terms of our stress liquidity uh, that we sort of manage. And that was a big takeaway for us from that from that last recession. Great, great. Well, Steve, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, thank you, Vlad. That was great. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Stay well, and um, you know, good luck returning everybody back to the office. Thank you. Likewise, take care. 